The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Windsor. She studied politics at Newcastle University before she started a career in motor racing as a press officer at Silverstone. In 2002, she joined the family business. Her father, Sir Frank Williams, was the founder and principal of the Williams Formula One team, one of the most successful teams in the history of the sport. There, she climbed up the team's ranks and in March 2013 became Deputy Team Principal. In its 44 years in F1, Williams has won 16 World Championships and more than a tenth of all Grand Prix. A 2017 documentary called them Formula One's Greatest Family. In May 2020, as coronavirus brought F1 to a halt, the Williams family decided to sell the team. In September, in the Italian Grand Prix, it had its final race under family ownership. Explaining her decision, she said, It takes a lot out of you, this sport, and I want to go and build myself back up a little bit, work out who I am away from Formula One. I'd like to just go away and be my own person, see what that feels like. My guest today is Claire Williams. Thank you very much for having me on today. It's weird, actually, listening back to things that I did say over that race weekend in Monza, because obviously it was quite a traumatic and emotional weekend for us and for me in particular with the family leaving the sport that we love and have been in for so many years so it is quite odd hearing you know things that I said over the weekend because to be honest I don't remember a whole lot of what I said but yeah it's true you know as I said that weekend we've we had a wonderful four decades in Formula One it was a sport that was incredibly kind to us but now, you know, we, we feel it's time to go off and do something else. And it's been a really heavenly few months doing that and just being at home with family and having chill time and not getting on any aeroplanes or packing suitcases. Exactly. A real contrast. And now I clearly want to talk about F1 and also the next steps for you. But on this podcast, we like to begin by rewinding the hands of time. And a question we ask everyone on this podcast, just get a mixed reaction, is would you describe your childhood as a happy one? <laughs> It's been a long time since my childhood, but yeah, I would overall. I grew up in a a very privileged world. You know, my dad, when I was born in 76, you know, Williams wasn't the success that he turned it into. My dad was still scrabbling around at the back of the grid and, you know, was midway through the decade of building Williams up. And so we were born into a home with no carpets and bailiffs regularly knocking on the doors (laughs) because my parents just had no money. But you know, from the early 80s, Williams transformed and turned into, you know, a monolith of Formula One. And obviously that afforded a huge amount of privilege. And so, you know, we were we were never spoilt within our family. We were kept very grounded and I'm enormously grateful for that. But it did enable a lovely childhood. You know, we went to great schools. We had a good education. I had lots of lovely friends and I had great parents, great parents who I was lucky enough to be inspired by, you know, not just my dad with the achievements that he managed to secure over his lifetime and career, but also through my mum, who was an extraordinary individual. So yeah, I would say, you know, despite a few ups and downs here and there, like everybody has in their childhood, it was it was a very happy childhood. And I feel incredibly lucky that I had the childhood that I did. 
You mentioned there your mother, your late mother, and you spoke in the past about how she was instrumental in the family business. Obviously, lots of people think about your father as as the face of it. So, growing up, I mean, you're talking about how they transformed and built up this, this company. Does that does that mean you, I suppose, were aware of what they were doing for work at a very early age? I think some people, such as myself, didn't really know what their parents did for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't actually. Um, you're right. When you're young, you don't really understand what your parents do and I think the the first time that I had any sense of you know what my my parents were involved with and what my dad did in particular was a school bus trip so I used to get the bus to school and we shared it with Abingdon Boys School and all the boys used to sit down at the back and they would shout and I was it would only be like seven or eight at the time Claire come down to the back come down to the back we want to talk to you about Formula One but what are you talking about? And I'd go down, obviously. And then they go, oh, my God, your dad's so cool. You know, he works in full Formula One with cars, etc. And it would be like, OK, my dad's quite cool. He obviously does something pretty impressive. And it was really only then that I kind of knew what he did. But you don't you don't understand it at that age. And really, it wasn't until my teens. And, you know, at which point Williams were doing phenomenally well with, you know, Nigel Mansell winning everything in 92 and and the like, that I really understood the enormity, I suppose, of my dad and his achievements and what the Williams family were involved in. And did you get a taste, I suppose, perhaps in your teens for F1, for cars? I mean, I'm guessing, was yours the type of household where you obviously get your driving licence as soon as you are eligible to? I say this as someone who still doesn't have their driving licence. <laughs> I think I'm of that generation, though, where everybody in their you know late teens was desperate to get their driving licence and get their first car and you know have some bonkers little hatchback to bomb around in and show off you know around town on a Friday night in and, and that was definitely me I didn't pass my driving test for the first time I don't think any of us did in, in our family and but no I definitely loved cars and I had my first ever car was a little pink Clio because we were in partnership with Renault at the time and so we always had to have cars made by the manufacturer that we had our engine supply from so I had a lot of Renaults in my early days of driving I progressed from my little pink Clio up to a very sporty little Renault Megane which I loved so yeah I've always loved my cars. Pink car sounds like the dream um, <laughs> and did you have any early career ambitions we've had various guests on this podcast some have said you know they wanted to be a mechanic nun I think was the strangest one we've had but did you think oh I want to do that at I know you went on to study politics. Yeah, no, I didn't. The only you mentioned nuns actually. I went to an all girls Catholic boarding school, and our nuns there used to say, "You become a nun through a vocation. You get a calling from God." So I remember all of us in our year at school would be there at the end of the bed at night praying that we never got a vocation from God to be a nun. So I knew I didn't want to do that, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And certainly at that time. Girls weren't really, you know, it, we didn't have it put in our heads to aspire to a real career, I don't think. And I didn't, I was quite lost at that age. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was actually incredibly fortunate that I did really what I call luck into my job at Silverstone. And if it hadn't have been for that, I don't know what I would have ended up doing. You know, I didn't have a that lovely vocation to either become a lawyer or a doctor I wish I had have done but I didn't have the brain power for it or the desire to probably study that hard stay in education so no I didn't have any aspirations and I was very lucky that I ended up doing what I did. 
Yeah, and how was Newcastle? Were you very political or were you more interested as a subject? We hear a lot about the Oxford-Cambridge politics scene, but not so much about Newcastle. Newcastle was a great university and I chose it because it's where my dad originally came from. But it also was pretty far away from my parents, which I was quite grateful for at the time. I wanted to be as far away so I could do what I wanted without getting into any kind of trouble. And I had a great four years there. But I, you know, I was very academic and I was very conscious when I was younger at school. And then I think like a lot of kids, particularly when they've been to boarding school, kind of lose that interest in education. And I was much more interested and I'd finally got my freedom out of spending eight years at boarding school. I was pretty excited to be let loose in Newcastle and I had a a great time. And it's funny now because at Newcastle they have this parade, I believe, where they have flags with pictures on of successful alumni, they call it. And they ask permission to have me on one of them and it was like my god I don't think any of the tutors that obviously knew me at the time are obviously still there now because if they had have been I don't think they would have wanted my face on one of those flags I'm not sure that I'm a shining example for Newcastle I um I enjoyed the party scene a bit too much I think rather than the studying now you mentioned obviously that you went to Silverstone Racing Circuit and you had that press job and you've spoken about how you loved it but you you left sooner than you planned I understand because there were redundancies is that right yeah it was quite a tumultuous time in Silverstone's history it went through a couple of different ownerships while I was there and I started as a very junior press officer they had an opening when I went along to get some career advice from the then MD And clearly I jumped at the opportunity and I took it and I just, I loved it. The people there were amazing, getting to work, race weekends and, yeah, but it was, it was hard slog. I'd have to be at the press office to open it up at like 6am on a Saturday and Sunday morning and then you'd be back at work on a Monday and work full through to prepare for the next race weekend. But it did go through a series of ownership changes. Brands Hatch bought it, Octagon then bought it and I think I swerved, I think, three different redundancy processes and I made my way up to the head of comms over those three years. And then then I was I got the chop and I, I was devastated. I loved Silverstone I, and I probably would still be there today if that hadn't have happened. Well, I'd like to think I would be if they would have kept me. And you went from there to a job in communications at Williams. I wondered, how did you feel going to your father's company at that point? Is it something you wanted to do or were you someone who, I mean, you went to Silverstone first. Did you like the idea of being an F1, but having a bit of distance? What was going through your mind? Yeah, I actually, I didn't hop straight from Silverstone press office to the Williams one. When I was made redundant, I went to work in the Williams travel office, which I'd done quite a lot in pretty much most of my school holidays from, I don't know, the age of 14, I would go and work with Donna, who was our travel officer at the time at Williams, and just help out, you know, sending faxes to book hotels to book rooms and, you know, hire cars and stuff like that. And I didn't want to just sit at home on the sofa job hunting. I thought I'll go and make myself useful. I say useful, probably in inverted commas. I'm not sure I was actually that useful. It's quite difficult organising 80 people to go to race weekends every fortnight around the world. I think I was probably more of a hindrance than a help. But at the time when I was there, the then press officer left and I got a phone call asking me if I was interested. So, and to be honest, I wasn't necessarily wholly I was interested, but I knew how my dad would feel about it. Dad was pretty clear he was not into nepotism, did not want his children working at Williams. 
my older brother already had a job there and he wasn't that keen on his daughter also working there. But fortunately, after about three months of lobbying by the then head of marketing, dad reluctantly agreed to give me a trial. And then obviously the rest is history. I was there for another 20 years. So, but I always just did what I was asked to do. And I would have been happy working for 20 years as a press officer at Williams. It was such a great place to work. It was such a privilege. I enjoyed every minute of it. That's so interesting that your father was was sceptical of, of his children working at that company because often, or at least the general stereotype in terms of, you know, people who say they want to bring their children in. So do you know what he wanted you to do in an ideal world or did he, he didn't, his opinions went much beyond perhaps not, not having a job at Williams? Yeah, exactly the latter. My dad was really not particularly interested as long as it didn't involve him having to sign my pay slips. He wanted us to go and do other stuff. But my dad is a wonderful father and we have an incredibly close relationship. I love him to bits, but he was not a hands-on dad throughout our, our childhood. You know, I think he came to one parent's evening and that was about it throughout my whole school career. And, you know, I don't think he gave a whole lot of thought to what his his kids might do, but certainly didn't really want them hanging around in Formula One. And quite right, you know, for for him, he'd forged his own career. He'd worked really hard at it. And I think he thought... his children need to go off and do the same. Unfortunately for him, it didn't quite turn out like that. But I think he's, he came to accept it after a few years and quite a few, he put me through my paces in the early years, let's put it like that. And ultimately, when your father stood down from the board, you replaced him as the family member on the board. So was that a decision he made? And what was that like? I mean, did, did your role in the company significantly change? Did things move up a gear? I've, I've just used a pun, I think. It's <laughs> very good. So my dad, yeah, it was 2012 when I went onto the board and I joined as commercial and marketing director, but also the family representative because my dad had stepped down and obviously the Williams family was still the majority in controlling shareholders. So we had to have representation. But it wasn't my father's decision at all. In fact, I think my father was the last person to be consulted as to me going on the board. You know, at the time, we were obviously a, a publicly listed company. We we floated on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange the year prior to me joining the board. And so it had to be a joint decision with all the other board members. And so they had all discussed it previously. Once they'd agreed it that I was to join, then they spoke to my dad, who, again, go, like, it was like 2002 on repeat. My dad was absolutely horrified, said, absolutely no way, blah, blah, blah. Why does she need to be on the board? She's just the press officer, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but then, you know, again, give him a few years and he was absolutely fine. I love this. <laughs> it feels like really counterintuitive to lots of the stories you hear. Yeah. And, then, and then in 2013, you were appointed deputy team principal. Can you explain to listeners who perhaps perhaps I'm including myself, who do not follow the world of F1 as closely as some, you know, the big fans, what a deputy team principal does and I suppose what, a, how that was for you, and two, what is a day in the life in terms of what that job is? Yeah, we have funny job titles in Formula One, but the team principal is effectively the person that runs the team. It's the same as, you know, the football manager, and they have day-to-day responsibility. My dad always retained the title of team principal, but operationally he didn't play a role from, you know, probably 2013 and, and beyond, if not a little later. And so, in effect, I was team principal, but in deference to my dad, I always kept the deputy part in my title. But I don't think you could probably ever say that one day being a a TP in Formula One was the same. There are always, you know, different challenges that you would face every day. And it was probably one of the 
best and most rewarding roles that I've ever had, but also one of the most challenging. You know, you'd wake up, you know, at five in the morning and, and look at your email kind of with your eyes half closed going, oh my God, what's going to be here today? And what have I got to deal with? Because, you know, you're dealing with your whole team. And, you know, at the time we had a thousand people at Williams because we had 750 on the F1 side, but we also had a very successful advanced engineering business. So there were 250 on that. And so, you know, it was effective responsibility for those people, their jobs and making sure they had everything they needed to perform their jobs effectively. And then obviously my principal role was going to the racetrack with the race team and running the team on event. And, you know, across the Formula One team, you, you're multidisciplinary as well. So you've got people that are engineers, aerodynamicists, you've got the, the marketing side of things, the commercial side of the things. So, you know, my, my breadth was, was across the whole group, you know, making sure we had the right engineers in to make sure that the car was as good as it could be, down to being responsible for bringing in the budget that we needed. And, you know, every year we needed 120 million quid to go racing to what the car looked like, to what the motorhome looked like. And I'm a bit of a control freak, and I use the word bit loosely. I'm a huge control freak, so wanting kind of tentacles in every area was really important to me. So, yeah, it was a brilliant, brilliant time. Certainly in the beginning when we were doing well, not so brilliant towards the latter years of my tenure when we weren't doing so well. I want to get to that, but I suppose... Lots of people, I suppose, imagine F1 as a lot of jet setting, going to glamorous hot locations for these roads. Is there a bit of that? I know there's obviously lots of toil and sweat and hard work, but do you get to see a lot? And I suppose meeting lots of people, what what would kind of, I suppose, that, that side of the job like? Yeah, I mean, I use the word privilege a lot, but it was an extraordinary privilege to have the job to work in Formula One. And, you know, my dad always said that. He used to look at me, you know, we'd have lunches regularly together or cups of tea and he'd go, Claire, my God, aren't we the luckiest people in this world? We get paid to do something that we love. And he'd be like, yeah, you know, we do this and, and not be paid because there is a whole lot of blood, sweat and tears involved in Formula One. It's not easy. You know, you've got your report card there every two weeks for everyone to see. And if you're not doing well, you're slagged off to high heaven. You know, and if you are doing well, it's, it's as much of a challenge to make sure you keep doing well. So the, pre- the, the there's enormous pressure, but equally you're in sport and sport in itself is a, is a brilliant thing to be a part of. You're making history each and every day in effect. And, you know, you do get to travel around the world. And I've been to some places that I would never have dreamt of ever going to if it weren't for, you know, traveling with the Formula One circus. And, you know, I was lucky I got to travel on private jets to Grand Prix. And that's incredible. Stay in amazing hotels. And I didn't take it for granted for a moment. I've done a lot of jobs in my time. I've been a chambermaid. I've been hotel receptionist. I've done all that kind of stuff. And you live in a very particular bubble when you live in a world like Formula One that's not the real world. And you can take it for granted if you're not careful. And you should never do that when you do get to do that kind of work. Despite the pressure, how hard it is, you've got to still keep a grip on reality and remember that other people have to do stuff that's a whole lot worse than what you're doing. Now, you referenced earlier how obviously Williams had mixed successes. So earlier on in your reign, it was, was faring better. And then near the end, for example, one figure I have is, you know, Williams won one Grand Prix in the last 16 seasons. But I thought I want to talk about all of that. I, I suppose let's start with the, the good bit. So you get the role and the team is, is doing well. What were your highlights? You know, what are the things you're most proud of from that time? Yeah, it's funny because I think people probably now 
and rightly so, probably associate me with, you know, some of the worst years of Williams's time in Formula One. The last three years of my tenure were incredibly difficult, um, but there were some very extenuating circumstances around why we ended up in that place. But when, as you said, when I took it on, but then actually they forget that when I took it on, I inherited a team that for the past three consecutive seasons had finished ninth, eighth and ninth. And I had the team for nine months and I managed to take it within less than a year to third place in the championship, two years in a row. And then we had two P5s. And, you know, that's not bad for a team that invariably was always the underdog, that had much fewer people, much fewer resources and a whole lot less money than the teams that we were competing against. And then and those were wonderful years. And almost I feel I wish that it had been the reverse and I'd had to fight a whole lot harder for that success and it was at the end of my tenure because I think it's important that you struggle harder for success and as much as I struggled for a year it was only a year before I was you know regularly you know running down to the podium and congratulating our drivers for second or third place we never won a race unfortunately during those years but those were great and it was huge interest still in Williams. They were the martini years. We had great fun. It was hard work, but, you know, there was reward for it. And obviously when you're still fighting hard, and in actual fact, you're fighting even harder when you're coming last or, you know, you're at the back end of the grid, you get no reward for it. And that's really painful. And it, it was, you know, it's very difficult. Yeah. And I saw in a recent interview, you talked about the lack of funds. I was wondering, what, what are the challenges you face when you're going through what I suppose is a very, you know, bad season or, you know, you're at the point, what are the logistical challenges which makes it harder to bounce back? I saw, and again, I'm not an expert, so tell me if I got this wrong, but I saw uh, a while ago you were quoted saying, you know, even if we had Lewis Hamilton, we would not be, you know, winning this race. So so what are the things that were, were holding Williams back at that point? Yeah, it was, it was, you know, what most things in life comes down to when you're not doing well is money. Formula One had become crazily expensive from just in a very short window, something triggered and, you know, people were ending, you know, the top end of the grid spending half a billion, you know, versus our budget of 120. And that's just not a level playing field from the outset and therefore very difficult to try and compete. And it, you know, when you're in that situation, it's it's difficult to claw your way back. And we also had, you know, some other difficulties internally with personnel. We were all fighting these very technical, very complex technical regulations that just kept becoming more, ever more complex season upon season that we were wrestling with and not getting to grips with at Williams. And then this probably taking it in too much detail for you and your listeners, but the list of listed parts, which are the parts you have to make yourself, which are what define you as an independent team, had become much more diluted. So other teams that had only been in the sport a shorter time than us that didn't have the resources were able to buy those parts from a team much higher up the grid, thereby making them a whole lot more successful, a whole lot more quickly and almost shortcutting the process. And, you know, all this kind of stuff just conspired to send Williams down to the back end of the grid. And once you're there, you're obviously receiving less prize money. You have less interest from sponsors. And so you get an even reduced budget and then you can't spend your way out of it. And in Formula One, if you're in trouble, you've got to be able to spend your way out of it. And then, you know, 2020 happened. We lost our title partner for reasons that we've talked about. And by 20, do you mean the pandemic? Yes, so last year, at the start of last year, we thought we'd kind of turned a corner 
And then our, we had the issues that we had with our title sponsorship, which stripped a load of money out of our budget. And then the pandemic hit. And it was just like, oh, my God, seriously, get, we've just like got through these two very difficult years. We think we turned a corner. You know, we've got the team back where we want it to be. We feel like we're making progress. And we were. I mean, we were a second, one and a half seconds quicker at a load of circuits this year off the back of a huge amount of hard work. And that shows that we were taking steps forward. But then... Yeah, those two last kind of nails in the coffin really just killed us. And it was like, seriously, you know, what do we have to do? And it just, we ran out of road basically at the end of 2020 as a family. And it was like, we've we've got to let this go now and, and hand it over to people that are able to invest in it because they've already got the money and they don't have to go out and seek sponsorship for it or, you know, whatever. And they can buy some time to plough their way up the ladder in Formula One. And what is it like for you personally going through that? Do you feel that you're getting much media scrutiny or do you feel that people are looking at you as, as the person who is effectively in charge and trying to say it's standard decisions you're making? Yeah, there was. You know, we were always very lucky as a team, I think, through the goodwill that my dad and his partner, Patrick, generated through their tenure in, in Formula One. People... And the media in particular love Williams and they want to see it do well. You know, it's that typical British success story, the underdog. They want to see Williams beat Ferrari, beat McLaren, beat Mercedes. And so we got a lot of support and we we retained that support through the early years of our demise. But then I think, you know, people started to turn a little bit and particularly, I think, against me. Quite rightly so. I was the leader. I was the boss and the buck stops with me. But equally, there are things that were out of that you make decisions at the time because you think that they're the right decisions and sometimes those decisions don't go your way and that's what happened in in my case but of course I got a lot of a lot of flack for it I got a lot of scrutiny for it I got a whole load of abuse apparently on social media but you know for me I couldn't listen to that noise and you know that for me would have taken up a huge amount of negative energy and I needed to focus my attention on the team and to prove everybody that I could do it And I think I could have done it if I'd have been given some more time and I had the money. But we didn't have the luxury of a huge title sponsor or a car manufacturer plugging 100 million into the team year on year. And so, you know, it was what it was at the end of the day. And I learned a huge amount from it. And I learned that I'm probably a whole lot more resilient because I don't care what people said about me. You know, I always said that if my team still had my back and supported me, then I would I wouldn't care what anyone else said, because only the people in the team knew the truth. And I knew the truth and I could live by that. Yeah, and I suppose sometimes it's making that hard decision because in the long term you think it's best for the company, even if it's one that is personally very difficult for you. Yeah, exactly. And and it was, you know, the, the decision to sell, I mean, we were really left with no choice but to do it. And of course, we wouldn't have done it if we if we weren't forced into a corner. But it was the right thing for the team. And, and actually, you know, I knew pretty much everybody in the team. I spent a lot of time talking to them and that was one of the biggest challenges over my latter years was how to still retain a culture that inspired people to keep fighting despite every weekend or every other weekend turning up to the racetrack and getting nothing for their hard work. And people put blood, sweat and tears still into getting our two cars to the racetrack, even knowing that the performance wasn't there. And so I did a lot of work trying to build that culture and and drive it. And that was one of the things that I was most proud of as my legacy at Williams. But I felt for those people that the team at Williams, that they needed the money, they needed owners that could put the money in and we couldn't do that. And I was, it upset me seeing them 
so desperate to be successful yet not having the tools with which to do that so that for me was a big kind of deciding factor in in doing what we did now I want to talk about what's next for you the very final thing on that I just wanted to ask was just in making that decision to pass the company on to sell it and to get new owners was that something you made with your family Yes, very much. You know, we're we're a very close family and there was being a PLC, it made it obviously all the more complicated because you have to go through quite a, a complex procedure around a sale process. So we had a lot of time. We talked to a lot of interested parties, which was great to know that there's still a lot of interest in Williams and in Formula One. I think it was a good health check for the team and for the sport yeah of course I discussed it with my dad I got two brothers so they were involved in the the process and obviously my husband but the rest of the Williams board as well you know we're you know Williams was always one big family and so you know the discussions were had and we all agreed that it was the right thing to do as much as it was heartbreaking it was the right thing to do and when you love something sometimes you just have to let it go now, I want to talk about what's next for you. You were an aw- awarded an OBE in the 2016 Queen's Birthdays Honours for services to Formula One racing, which is obviously a great achievement. But I wondered, you don't often, or at least I feel as though when I read about F1, it's often about men in F1 rather than women. And I wondered, ha- have you found that it's a male-dominated industry, obviously from, from when you first started? And is it still the case? I mean, how has it changed, really? Yeah, when I first started, you know, and that was back in, you know, the early 2000s, the the conversation about women in the workplace was not where it is today. And there were very few women in the sport. And those, you know, the women that were in the sport were really restricted to the marketing hospitality type roles. And over my time in Formula One, it was it was great to see women coming in into the wider the wider mix of roles, women working in the aero department, in engineering in all those roles that were so traditionally held by men and really holding their own in it. And that that spread across the whole of the sport. And certainly over the past six or seven years, the, the footprint of women in Formula One has grown exponentially. And it's really great to see. And Williams, I very much felt I'd like to feel we were you know, a leader and a real proponent of that. When I first started, I was like, oh, I don't really think about you know, women or being a woman in Formula One, I don't really care. I've grown up in the sport, surrounded by men, I'm used to it. And then when it was kind of pointed out to me that I'm now in this senior role and, you know, I'm a role model, I was like, no, I'm not, don't be ridiculous. But then I, and I, and I never felt that I was, but I felt that it was important and incumbent upon me to actually play my part. Because if that was the case, then it was my responsibility to show that Formula One is a welcoming environment and I do believe it to be so it is a welcoming environment to women there are no barriers to entry it is a great place to work and women you know have every right to come into Formula One and be incredibly successful in it there are some brilliant women working in our in in Formula One who are doing a wonderful job and and they take the mantle for playing you know the role of role model now to show the younger generation that women can come into Formula One and have incredibly successful careers in the sport but I do miss that role and I was doing a lot at Williams to support females in the workplace I created a a group called women at Williams and I was very proud of that work and I, I kind of that was for me as much as not being able to finish my time turning performance around not being able to continue what I'd started in in that respect at the team trying to get a greater gender balance across the workplace but also around greater diversity across all areas not just females at Williams was something really important to me and is something that I can't continue but I know that the the new owners are going to be doing that and that's nice. 
Now, I've just got a final few quick questions, which is just final thing on that. I just wondered, you were talking earlier about some of the criticism directed at you and obviously taking the approach not to, to not to read it or pay too much attention to it. But I just wondered, did did anything ever about your gender come up where people were like, oh, is the woman in charge? Or, or was that not something that was ever lobbied oh, against yeah. you, if that makes sense? Oh, no, that came up repeatedly. Oh, it's because she's a woman. And I also got, oh, she's only in the job anyway because she's, you know, she's dad's daughter. She's Frank's daughter. You know, get her out. I got that a lot. I know that I got that a lot. And, you know, I just, I don't, I don't care what people think or write about stuff like that when they've never walked a day in my shoes and they don't know the truth. You can sling as much mud as you like, but it doesn't stick on me. If that's what you want to accuse me of, then that's fine. I was my dad's daughter. And that was one of the reasons why I was in the job, for goodness sake, you know, because we're a family team and people at Williams wanted the next generation of Williamses to come in and run the team and for you know the family to still be involved. That was the whole point. So anyone that criticises the fact that I took over for my dad just misses the point completely about the importance of family and next generations. But also, yes, I got I got the mud slinging for being a girl, but that just made me dig my heels in and, and fight even harder because that just shouldn't be allowed to be the case. Final things, I want to talk about what next for you? Are you going to be able to watch F1 for fun and focus on other things? I know you have a young son, so... And I also know we're in the middle of a pandemic, so even if you wanted to do something... Yes. <laughs> quite yes. a low chance in terms of the next two, three months, maybe longer. But, but <laughs> what, what are you looking ahead to? Do you know, I, I said that I wanted to spend a year, and I'm lucky enough to be able to do so, that I can spend a year being at home and being a housewife and a mum. And you asked me, one of the first questions was, you know, what did you want to be? And all I ever really wanted to do with my life was to be a great mum and a great wife. And I haven't had the opportunity to do that because I've had to sacrifice that for the sake of the team. But now I have that opportunity. I've missed really the first three years of my little boy's life. I haven't been around as much as I would have liked or as much as he would like me to have been. And and certainly, you know, I haven't given my new husband the attention that he deserves. He's had to follow me and live in my shadow. And it's their time now. So I want to spend the next few months doing that. We had wonderful plans to travel and do a lot of travel and hope that Corona would have been gone by now. So we're staying at home. But, you know, for somebody, I've, I've travelled my, you know, whole adult career, my whole, for the past 25 years, I've lived out of a suitcase. So to not pack a bag, to not go to Heathrow or wherever and, you know, to be at home. And actually the pandemic gives me a great excuse because I forever thrash myself if I'm not up and about super early busy you know all day long now I have the perfect excuse I get to just sit on the sofa and watch Netflix which is wonderful so yeah I don't plan on doing anything for a bit but in a year I will I figure out what I want to do have you got any Netflix guilty pleasures at the moment? I'm slightly asking for myself. I feel like I've watched nearly every program oh, from yes. my after. Yeah, I've watched everything, <laughs> literally running out. But the best thing by a country mile that we've watched in lockdown is Sons of Anarchy. It's absolutely, we're late to the party, but it's the best thing. And I've just loved that. So we might be re-watching a bit of Sons of Anarchy. That's the motorbike gang, isn't it? Yes, which, yeah, it's very on me. I quite like the Queen and the Crown and Victoria and stuff like that. And then it juxtaposed against Sons of Anarchy, but I love it. It's wonderful. Final two questions. One was just, are you still able to enjoy F1? Do you feel like now you can go back to to liking that when I stepped away? Or is that actually hard now to watch? I was wondering how, how it is with something like that. I haven't watched any of it. I do find it really painful. I'm so happy that the new owners want to 
keep the name and you know the team's still called Williams I find it really difficult it's too heart-wrenching to put it on and it's kind of weird you know they're all your people that you hang out hung out with for however many years and now you don't get to see them at all and so it is kind of there's a bit of a grieving process because those are the people that I spent my life with and I don't see them anymore and I you know I don't want to see them on the tv and I wish them you know I wish everybody in the team well and I I hope and I know that they will get back to where they deserve to be because they work so super hard but I I can't watch it it's too painful right now which is a bit pathetic well, you, but hey well no you've got Sons of Anarchy I have Sons of Anarchy in Netflix <laughs> it. the very final question I wanted to ask which is when we ask everyone on this podcast which yeah. is what is the worst advice you've ever been given we started asking people the best advice but actually that was a bit boring so we're now going yeah. for the worst advice whether or not you took it or you ignored it <laughs> the worst advice I have ever been given is that I should really wear heels in the paddock so anyone that hasn't been to a Formula One race, the paddock is, you know, our working environment. You've got your motorhome, your garage over the road, you've got the track and all the rest of it. And whatever job you're doing in Formula One, you are running around like an idiot from seven in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. You're on your feet all day long, running from here to there. I'm quite short. I'm five foot four. And it's never bothered me, but apparently it clearly bothered this person that told me that I should wear heels. Because they said, okay, you're really rather short. You don't have a lot of gravitas. Maybe you should consider walking around in heels in the paddock while you're doing your job. And I was like, are you kidding? I'm not going to walk around in six inch stilettos just because I might be on the shorter side of life. (laughs) That is not effective for me trying to do my job. I'm wearing my trainers and my team kit like everybody else. Heels is just, they're not conducive to getting the job done in Formula One. So I did not listen. I did not wear heels. I never did. And I was very happy wearing my Williams trainers. Brilliant. Well, that's, that's good advice to take on. And thank you, Claire. And thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Hold up. 